Good morning, everyone. Can you hear that? <clears throat> Am I live? Okay. What do we sing? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Like Dara, I just love Christmas time. I get so excited about it. And you know, now that I'm Christian, I don't really know why I used to get excited about Christmas before. I think it's a lot was to do with my boyhood memories, and they're still alive and kicking in me as well, I, I, should, I should like to think. I, I still get so excited about the silly things of Christmas, like cutting a Christmas tree, which in itself was, <laughs> was anchored in memories long ago of going up the Shauna Feistein Road and stealing a Christmas tree. And I remember one year, my, my dad, in a covert operation, got mom to drop us off at the side of a road to put a handsaw, you know? We were pretty mean. And, uh, you know, the temptation was too big. There was just so many trees in that wood. But while we were cutting the tree, a quick, you know, anyone who's been up the Shauna Feistein Road will know fog can drop any second. So a fog just descended on us, and as we were cutting the tree, Mom was, went up the road, turned, came back, and went by us. She couldn't find us. So for the next five minutes, we could see a car going up and down the road, and we didn't know if it was the Gordie or who it was, so we were kind of looking out. My dad was sending me out to see, was it Mom's car, you know? But anyways, all these silly memories come flooding back at Christmas time, and you know, we get the house ready, we clean the house, and, and we're getting ready for something, you know, and it's only when I become a Christian that we suddenly realize what we're actually getting ready for. We're getting ready for Jesus. But, you know, this time of the year is not a good time of the year for everyone. Um, most people do look forward to Christmas, but for some people, it's a time of, of it could be a time of, of depression. Um, scientists have now figured out that, you know, when the light intensity falls at this time of the year and the season of Advent coming up to Christmas, serotonin in our brain isn't made as much as it is during the summertime, and we just feel depressed. We feel like spending more time in bed. We feel like eating more. We're more tired. We spend more time in front of TV, and that affects all of us. But for people who it really affects, it's a, it's a real depressing time of the year. Of course, it's a financially tough time of the year as well. Uh, moms and dads are trying to struggle, trying to get maybe presents for the kids or presents for the neighbors. So there are many, many things that lead people to delight in Christmas and many things that lead some people to look on Christmas as being a real time of strain. Um, throw in COVID this year and we have another kettle of fish altogether, you know, is it safe to visit the family? Masks on, masks off, how many households? And this increases some people's strain. Even people who normally delight in Christmas might feel a bit of a strain or tension with this Christmas and last Christmas in particular. But that's the way it is. Uh, statistics also say there's an increase in company layoffs. There's more motor accidents. Um, I hope I'm not getting <laughs> everyone all depressed, but I'm just trying to paint a picture that it's a mixed bag Christmas for all of us. And even though all of us in this room who are Christians might delight in Christmas, <clears throat> for other people it's a time of sadness and sorrow. And even we ourselves who might think back on, on lost loved ones through illness or, or who can't be with us around the Christmas dinner table through illness or, or maybe death, it gives a poignant time of the year as well. Life is tough. We know that. Life is tough. And life at times can deal with a real bad deck of cards. It can be really, really raw. And we know that. And we know that people in this church are having a tough time this year. That some of us have been dealt a really raw deck of cards. But you know what? You're not alone. And to depress people further even, I'm going to read a bit from Psalm 88, which is a lament psalm in, in, the, in the Psalter. And it's probably, it is the only psalm which has no kind of little chink of, of good news at the end. You know those, those psalms that, that David, whoever writes them, is, is sort of complaining and pleading and wrestling with God 
and things seem bleak, but then in the last couple of verses, David says, oh, and, and I know you'll come good. I know you'll come faithful, God, because you've shown it before. And then he kind of invokes Israel as well. And, and while you're at it, Israel, will you, while you're at it, God blessing me, won't you bless Israel as well? There doesn't seem to be any tail end to this psalm at all. Let me give you a sample. David writes in verse 13 of Psalm 88, if you want to flick through it. But I, O Lord, cry to you, he said, in the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. And it goes on and on and on. And there's no good news seemingly in this psalm. No sort of, no sort of hope at the end of it. So there's no doubt that even King David, this blessed man who was so blessed by God and loved by God, could feel deep, raw, sore pain in life. And it shouldn't be any different for us. We shouldn't be surprised when they come our way, because they will come our way. You know, even some people who enjoy the Christmas season, when it's over, they might find themselves down in the dumps again, the January blues. And people in life, Christians as well, sometimes get can pulled into this, can sort of try various methods to try and get that high up again. Uh, retail therapy. I remember speaking to a friend of mine last year, um, a good fishing friend of mine who had to mind his mom during the first lockdown. And he was living up in Dublin, city centre, couldn't get out of the flat, couldn't fish his beloved rivers or lakes, couldn't get out into the countryside, couldn't hear the birds singing. And he got pretty depressed. And I spoke to him after the lockdown. I went up and I visited him. I said, hey, buddy, I said, how did you, how did you get on? And he said, oh, he said, it wasn't good here. He said, it was not good. And he told me the only way he could cope, he said, was by buying stuff. I said, uh, man, you don't have much money. Where were you getting the money to buy? He said, I don't know where I'm still paying it off. He says, you should see the stuff I bought. He says, I don't need half of it. That's the only way he could cope with this time of, of strain and tension was by buying stuff. And he said, I've never done it before, he said. Other people might plan a holiday, you know. They think, well, that will make me happy. That will give me happiness in life. It's something to look forward to. And that's not a bad thing in itself. These people who kind of maybe work towards a target. We, kind of, we all tend to do it every now and again. We work towards little targets in life to make us feel good or maybe to make the time go faster. And in itself, it's not a bad thing. But when we look on that as our ultimate hope and our ultimate prize of happiness, we're going to get into trouble. Other people might become busy in life. They think that happiness has to do with maybe just getting stuff, worldly stuff, wealth. And they work overtime, and they work so much that their family life is compromised. Their own personal, emotional life is compromised. Their own physical life is compromised. Other people, people take it too far the other side. They get totally involved in physical stuff. They go to the gym to get that finely tuned body that they think will give them happiness. Or maybe they might immerse themselves in sports and pastime, completely blotting out reality and just focused on achieving something in the sporting arena. Again, not a bad thing if taken in small doses. But if you think that this is going to give you full happiness and depth of happiness, you're mistaken. You see, this type of happiness can never fulfill because it's a positive emotional feeling that comes from external favorable conditions. It's constantly going up and down. 
It might be the feeling that you get if you finally get that job that you've always wanted. Or I can attest to this, your car starts for the third time in the morning when you try and start it up. It's here now and it's gone in a second. You know, you've all, you've all been there. This type of problem was Samson's problem. This is the type of happiness that he strove for. We can read in the Bible of Samson, when everything was going his way, he was jubilant and joyous. But when he couldn't get what he wanted, he turned to anger and sorrow. He was experiencing surface-level happiness, old Samson. He wasn't experiencing joy. Now, some might think, hang on, aren't joy and happiness really the same? Really? Well, they can be used in the same context, but for the purpose of this sermon, I'm going to make a distinction. Joy traditionally kind of has been a spiritual world, a spiritual word. It's been, it's been used in conjunction with, with God and, 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 and holy things, you might say, as we might say in my former faith. They are similar, but they have two very different reasons, and are two, different, uh, two very great differences. And the difference is what they're rooted in. You might say that happiness comes from our sense of joy, or our sense of happiness, or the sense of um, upright spirit, from anything that is other than the wonder and beauty of Christ. Anything that is other than the wonder and beauty of Christ. So that new car, parked out in the car park, might give us plenty of happiness. Our happiness or our, our mood is, is rooted in that external circumstance. And maybe two years down the road, we might look out and say, you know what, I think I need to trade that car. I need to get the 2.5 liter version. That might make me happy. But joy is a different animal. Joy is, is something which is rooted in God's character and promises as revealed to us in the character of Jesus Christ. It's an entirely different thing. It's rooted in God's promises and in God's love. Things that can never go up and down like the waves of the sea. They are steady. They are like a rock all the time. I know some of these might sound a bit corny, but this might help us to see or understand the difference between the two. One quote says that happiness is smiling when the sun's out and joy is dancing in the downpour. I like that one. Or what about happiness is based on what's happening, but joy is based on what we believe. And the last one, joy is that kind of happiness that does not depend on what happens. So we can see clearly that one is anchored firmly in God and something that doesn't move. And surface happiness is anchored, if we can say that, in circumstances that are external, we have no control over most of the time. They're fleeting, they're gone, they're here today and gone tomorrow, they're temporal. Some might be thinking, you know what, this joy thing sounds a bit nice to me, how can I get it? I've tried happiness and it doesn't seem to work for me. Well, you can't really get this thing if you go out on a mission to try and seek it like you can buying a new car or getting a new job or getting a new wife or husband, as some people think will give them husband. If I only could be rid of my wife and get a new wife, I'd be grand. If only I could be rid of my husband and get a proper man who does work around the house, I'd be grand. No, those type of aspirations will never give you true joy. So nothing new will give you joy. Joy is associated and rooted in God's love. You must first experience God's love before you experience joy. So it's dependent on God's love. In fact, it's the fruit of God's love. We can see in Galatians, can't we? It's one of the fruits of the Spirit, isn't it? And when one, when one tries to seek out joy, independent of God's love, you'll never find it. So let's turn briefly to John 15. 
So open up your Bibles on John 15. We'll see that the context of John 15 was Jesus speaking to his disciples shortly before going to the cross. And they're a bit anxious. They're wondering, where is he going? And, and I'll be here, I'll be gone. And I'm here now, but I'll be, I'll be gone in a while. I'll be back in a while. And they were confused. And, and Jesus is trying, to, he's trying to relate to them that don't be anxious, guys. And the following 10 verses, I think, are, are just amazing. Man, if we really understood the deep meaning of these words, we would surely, surely be filled with joy. If the world understood them, they couldn't stand on the wall about these verses. You can't stand on the wall about these following 10 verses. You're either falling off the wall or you're on the wall. You, you, you're either with Christ on this or you're against him. These verses are either rubbish or they're true. You can't pick bits of them out. They're all, as we say in Irish, fitzifuerte. They're all interwoven with one another. <clears throat> he tells us in verse 4, he says, Abide in me, he says to the disciples, and I in you. So abiding kind of means living or remaining. It's a picture not kind of of casual acquaintance. It's intimate. It's close relationship. We see in Ephesians all the times that it says, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. We can see in, in Colossians it says that your life is hidden in Christ. When Christ who is your life Christ's life is our life, our life is Christ's life. There's been, as Martin Luther said, a, a wonderful marriage, a swapping over. Our debt is Christ's debt and his blessings are our own blessings. It's been a wonderful swap. We're, we're intertwined with Christ. We're at one with Christ. We're abiding with Christ. And this abiding love, you know, sometimes we read these verses and we think, man, this must be for the privileged Christian. This is for the heavyweight Christian who abides. No, this is for all Christians. Not abiding in him is the same as not being his in the first place. Now, Peter and Judas, they seemed identical, didn't they, in their walks with Christ? But Peter was abiding in him, and Judas was not abiding in him. And it's only by abiding in Christ that the Christian can bear any fruit at all, these verses tell us. We feed off the vine who is Jesus Christ. And without the vine, we have no life ourselves. The vine sustains us. Jesus sustains us. Jesus motivates us. The vine enables us to do the works of God that God himself has set aside to do. Remember Ephesians says that we are saved unto good works. Imagine, Jesus Christ has works lined up for us from time eternity past for us to perform. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? That he has works lined up for every one of us in this room from eternity past. And the outcome of all this is God is glorified. God is lifted up as being glorious, holy, wonderful, gracious, beautiful. And because a true disciple abides in Jesus, the love that the Father has for Jesus abides in his disciples as well. Look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. This verse is extraordinary. As the Father has loved me, so, I've, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. I mean, this verse should change lives if it's truly understood, shouldn't it? You can't ignore it. It's, it's just too weighty. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. You can't be loved anymore. You won't be any more loved now the day you pass over in the threshold of heaven than you are today. Abide in my love, Jesus says. You see, the creator of the universe, the very creator of the universe, has the desire to love those made in his image, even though we've been rebelling from the very, from the very, very start, from the garden, 
And he's a desire to love us not in some sort of downgraded way, as, you know, as if there was such a thing as downgraded love. But he loves us as he loves his son. He can't love us anymore. We read in Romans that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we read in that letter as well that, that not alone has man suffered tragically from his rebellion against God, but the whole world, the whole creation groans waiting for redemption. So sin, if you were to ask normal Joe Bloggs walking down Shop Street, sin is, is probably, they'd say, breaking a bunch of rules, breaking laws. I'd just be nice with one another. Well, sin in the Bible is much, much deeper than that. Sin is putting yourself up on the throne where God would be, looking him straight in the eye and saying, you know what, God, you're not enough. Raising your fist at him and turning your back on him and walking away. It is idolatry. It is much more serious than breaking a bunch of rules. And yet he loves us. Yet he's prepared to love us with the same love that he had for the Son. Yet he is prepared to send the Son in the form of sinful man at this time of the year to remedy the problem, to restore relationship. Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This God did not begrudgingly forgive us of our sins. He pursued us. What a love that he has for his son. To restore the fellowship that has been broken by us, the guilty party. I love the way Michael Reeves paints a picture of God in his book, The Good God. He says that God, he said, is not like a celestial traffic cop that stops us and lets us off with our offenses, you know. He says, we could never love a God like that. We might, he said, feel kind of, to paraphrase him, we might feel thankful. We might feel thanks for the favor, but we could never love a God like that. And we certainly wouldn't give a God like that our life. And you could never love a God like that either. I certainly couldn't. Appreciative? Yes, I'd be appreciative that my sins were forgiven. Thankful? Yes, but loving? Probably not. I might feel that I'm obliged to return the favor in some way, which is a problem with a lot of religions. You get something, well, surely I must give something back. God has held nothing back in his forgiveness. And he now loves the forgiven son who by faith believes in Christ. He now loves us who, believing in what Christ has done for us on the cross, with the same love that he has for his son. This is remarkable. The love that the father shared with the Holy Spirit, shared with the Son from the very beginning, he now shares with us. You see, our God is a sharing God. He doesn't, he's not a God that is pictured in other, other religions or maybe other people have of this Christian God as a grumpy old bean-counting grandfather up there sitting on a cloud, a bit like a cranky old grandfather that whacks the grandchildren in the back of their legs with a stick if they come too near him. He goes out, he pursues, he shares, he loves he desires our fellowship. He wants to reconcile us. And then in verse 10 we see, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as, have I kept, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Obedience to the Christian now, is what John is talking about, becomes a way of continuing to bask in God's love for us. It's, it's not a painful chore. It's not something we have to do to attain the love of the Father. It's something we do because we have sweet fellowship with the Father. 
And this joy is remarkable. Sorry, this, this is how anyone can behold true joy, by beholding the sun. This joy, it's, it's not giddiness, it's not just surface excitement, it's deep. One commentator said, The joy of Jesus is not the pleasure of a life of ease. It is the exhilaration of being right with God, he said, and consciously walking in his love and care. We can have that joy, and we can have it as an abiding presence. This joy is not like sort of surface happiness that you have maybe on a, on a, on a surfboard if you're on the sea. It's the, it's the seaside rock that is steady. It's always the same. It never goes away. You might move from it, but it never moves from you. It's not dependent on circumstances. It's an entirely different thing. Great spiritual strength and fortitude are its hallmark. Look at David in Psalm 88 again. As I said, there doesn't seem to be any hopeful last verse here or two, but you know what? There are hints all over the psalm that David is not despairing. Can you see them? He's taking his complaints. He's taking his struggles to God. He's saying, look at God, I'm struggling. I'm deep in trouble here. I can't see any way out. But by the very fact that he wrote the psalm means he's laying out his troubles to the Lord. Why would he lay out his troubles to the Lord? Because he's seen his, he's seen his God, his faithful God, Deliver him before. It's the only thing he can do. Lay his troubles out to God and wait. And so we read in verse 1 and 2, he says, O God of my salvation, look, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to hear my cry. He's saying to God, God, listen to me. He's not just, he's not just whinging. He's pleading with him, knowing that God will listen to him. Because he knows God is faithful. Because he's experienced it in the past. And so it is with us. Verse 9 he says, My eyes grow dim through the sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. Every day, you see? The first verse, day and night. Now he says every day. And then again in verse 13. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. He hasn't given up. He hasn't despaired. All is not hopeless. Even in the depths of despair, this man of God who was so greatly blessed by God, he's hit rock bottom, but he's been brutally honest with God. Verse 15, he says, from my youth. Imagine, from my youth, he says. And we can see that David was plucked from the, from the flock as a young lad. From my youth, he says, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and I am in despair. Someone might be saying, you know, where is David's joy now? This man who experienced God so, so, so closely. It doesn't sound good, but it, it is. David still is looking to God's joy by the fact that he's pleading to God. If he didn't plead to God and turned his back on God, well, then he would be despairing. Oh, no. David has too great a faith to do that. And that's the same with us as well. When we go through our mists of pain and and raw troubles in life. It's God's faithfulness in our past life that, that help us to look forward to deliverance in the future. Sure, we may have a big mist coming between us and God's joy at times, and there's no harm in saying to a brother or a sister, look at, I'm really in a bad place at the moment. I'm down in the dumps. I remember when I became a new Christian. Um, I always thought that you had to have a happy face on yourself, that you always had to be in a good mood. 
And when I'd be down, I'd, I'd feel really guilty and I'd say, well, this is not right. I, I shouldn't feel down. I should, be, I should be happy all the time. And then I started reading the Psalms and I saw that David, who wrote most of the Psalms, certainly wasn't a happy, clappy, chappy most of the time. He had deep problems, but he also had deep joy. He got deep deliverance from the Lord on many occasions. And each time that he got it, hope, his hope was reinforced. There's no harm with us as well pleading with God, even when things seem bleak and hopeless, night and day, day in and day out, pleading with him. It might be God's choice that he mightn't deliver you from this struggle that you're going through, but that you learn something from it, or some part of your character is strengthened. We don't like to hear things like these, but God is sovereign. We have to wait with quite, prom quite confidence to the great promise that God has made us. This great promise is ahead of us. The other side of that mist, it's like a great jewel. Peter writes in chapter one, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, our promise is to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's kept in heaven for you who by God's power, not your own power, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, he says, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. In other words, Peter is saying, look at the trials that you're going through now, even though they feel real and they are real, even though they feel unbearable and they probably are unbearable, in the grand scheme of eternity, they're only for a short while. He's not saying that they're not important, unimportant, but he's saying we can bear them because they're only for a short while. There is something greater at the other side. And Peter finishes in verse 7, he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, we might have experienced real hurt in our lives, and we have. Even people sitting before me here today are going through real hurt at the moment. Betrayal, persecution, some parts of the world, threats of violence. But it's reassuring that these dark days, are, as Peter said, they're only a little while. Larry Crabb, I, I forget the name of the book that he wrote, but it, I came across it. Jason uh, whisked this to me via the internet during the week. I thought it was brilliant. He recounts something which might be of great interest to us who are at times struggling with keeping joy in view. He says that in the Old Testament, there was only one group of people that were not allowed to tear their robes when they despaired, and they were the priests. In fact, there were instructions given in the Old Testament whereby the robe had to be stitched in such a way that it, you know, it couldn't even be torn by, by accident. The stitching was reinforced. And the only reason or the only occasion where a priest was allowed to tear that robe was in the case of blasphemy. Now, it's interesting this, I think, because there was a special day, wasn't there? What do you call the, the high priest's big, big day in the Old Testament? It was the Day of Atonement, wasn't it? And this was where the priest or the high priest went into the Holy Holies with blood to sacrifice on behalf of himself and his people for their sin. And it would be spilt on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, to make good for the sins of the people for that particular year. And it was a great privilege for the high priest to be in this role, to be able to go into the Holy of Holies, into the very immediate presence of God. And it was because of that 
the high priest and the priests were not allowed to tear their robes. Because if they tore their robes, despite being able to access the immediate presence of the Lord, it would be a terrible indictment on the poor Lord. It would be a shunning of the Lord. Larry Crabb says, we can express this truth in another way, he said. When a person is aware of God's presence in his or her life, nothing that happens need provoke a sense of despair. If a priest were to tear his clothes, he said, for personal grief, he would implicitly affirm that life poses problems to which God has no solution. And this is never true. He goes on, the God who is love, the God of eternity, the infinite personal God who at once lives in the hearts of his people and sovereignly directs the flow of history is sufficient for every situation. Nothing takes him by surprise. No problem is beyond his power to master. There is no possible event in life for which his grace is not sufficient. People who can approach this God directly must not despair. To do so implies that God is impotent to work for eternal good in your circumstances. Now some of you might be thinking as you're listening to that about the high priest, doesn't Paul call us priests? So if we are priests, or, as, or sorry, as Peter says, a holy priesthood, we cannot tear our robes either. We cannot despair. We may struggle, but we cannot be hopeless. Our joy is always before us. Being the recipients of Jesus' joy um, allows us to have a pretty handy resource. We can see that it helps to temper all of our other emotions, which sometimes can get out of hand at times. And we can see even in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, Jesus is always assuring his disciples they're anxious. He says, Don't be anxious. And they feel sorrow in John 16. He says, Sorrow not. Uh, we can see even in the uh, Luke 1 and 2 Christmas story, he tells the shepherds, Fear not, for your fear will be turned to joy. All these things, all these surface emotions sometimes which can bubble up in us depending on external circumstances, they're all tempered, they're all kept in their right place by joy. And another point which joy allows us to do, it allows us to battle worldly challenges. And some of these verses are, are tough reading. When we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says, uh, for in, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. James writes, James 1, verse 2, when you meet trials, he says, count them as joy. Now, these are verses that we don't go, yay, when we read them, I'm like that. But that's what the Christian, that's how the Christian is asked to view trials. And Romans chapter 5, Paul says, more than that, he says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing suffering produces hope. Can you imagine being a Jew in the New Testament times, when the last prophet was 400 years before? There wasn't a single prophet from Malachi until John the Baptist popped up. Can you imagine the kind of the sorrow and the expectation of, when is the next prophet coming? We haven't had one. Those years were called the silence of God where God didn't speak. And suddenly one day, news bursts forth that there's a guy out in the wilderness, he's dressed pretty oddly and he's eating weird food, but anyways, he's talking that, he's, a, he's, he's saying he's a prophet and he's getting the way ready for another one. He says, who's going to be greater than he? 
Man, there must have been some excitement in the land. And then we have angels bursting forth all over the place. In Luke chapter 1 and 2 and in Matthew we read that the angels came and they appeared to Magi, they appeared to shepherds, they appeared to Mary, to Zechariah, to Elizabeth, to Joseph. And if you look at the hallmark of their message, what they were saying to everyone was, have joy. It's going to be a time of great joy now. Something marvelous is going to happen in this land. Joy just broke out, just as Jesus broke out. And so briefly we go back to David, just in case we leave the impression that the poor chap is a bit of a depressant. We read in, chapter, or in, in um, Psalm 51, that great psalm where, which David penned when he sinned with Bathsheba, who was married to another man. He lusted after her, he craved after her. And he designed situations, circumstances, such a way that he could have her. He designed circumstances that he got her husband murdered. And that he spoke to the chief of his army and he corrupted the army by asking them to cover up and to do something foul and corrupt and get telling Uriah to go forward into the heat of the battle where they knew he would die. So his heart was broken, he realized, when he was confronted by the prophet that he had done grave wrong. And he repented, repented deeply. And he got severe discipline by God. But God did bring him back into fellowship in the end. And I love verse 12. After the, the heart-wrenching pleading of, God, of David to God up to then, verse 12 says, look what David is looking for. Restore to me, he said, the joy of your salvation. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And so it is with us when we sin. What's the first thing we don't want to do? We don't want to share our joy. We don't want to evangelize. So it was with David. When this joy is restored to David, look what he can do. He writes, Then my tongue, he says, will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, he says, and my mouth will declare your praise. He couldn't do it while he was in the middle of sin. But when he was in fellowship, when the joy of God was restored, joy broke out and he shared it. And this is what Jesus does for us as well. Surely it's a cause for joy. This is what we're doing in the Galway market this coming week. We're sharing our joy. We're inviting people into the kingdom because it has burst out from us, because it has been worked into us by God. Philippians 4.4, 4, we'll finish off, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let's pray. Father God, um, Help us to walk in your love, Lord. Help us to keep abiding in you so that we delight in our obedience and we get joy from our obedience and that we experience the joy of your love and your close fellowship as we walk through this life, as we walk through our trials, which are, as Peter says, only for a little while. Lord, help us not to put our hope in temporal things, but in everlasting things. 
in your son Jesus, who has been heralded at this time of the year as the source of joy and light, who has come into the world to save sins, through something as small and fragile as a baby, to something as mighty as a roaring lion, roaring lion and a judge. Lord, it is truly marvelous what you have done. It is truly amazing what you have done, Lord. In saving us, rebellious sinners, who have been rebelling from the very beginning, bringing us into fellowship, declaring us sons and daughters, inviting us into the fellowship that you have with the Son and the Holy Spirit, accessing or letting us access your deepest love, your deepest resources, pursuing us when we wander, disciplining us for our own good, and restoring fellowship when heartfelt repentance is in our heart, Lord. Help us to keep repenting as we grow as Christians. Help us never to think that we're there. Help us to be humble and help us to be a people who share. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.